In the summer of 1863, Confederate General Robert E. Lee is on a hot streak of victories. Now, to keep this momentum going and to have a chance to win the war, Lee plans an invasion of the North. His philosophy is, is that if he can run a sustained campaign and win a decisive victory against the Army of the Potomac and possibly even destroy the Army of the Potomac in the North, that the Lincoln administration will have to be forced to sue for peace or at least call for peace accords. This is the story of the bloodiest battle in American history. This is the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. Before we get too in-depth with the story, here is a quick word from our sponsors. Hello everybody, I'm Joe, this is History Inc., and on today's episode and the following episodes, we're going to be talking about a story that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, why Gettysburg is so important to me is that it's really what got me into history, and without Gettysburg, I wouldn't be here where I am today, seeking out a degree and, you know, having this podcast, having my Instagram account, what have you, writing essays, all that jazz. So Gettysburg is important to me because I went there as a kid, fell in love with it. I've been going back every year since. I've been there probably 30, 40 plus times. Uh, I've given tours there to family, to book clubs, and uh, more recently now I'm going to be giving a tour there September 27th. Uh, for a class I'm taking, actually, in uh, at my university, and the class is the Battle of Gettysburg, so I'll be giving a tour there that uh, on September 27th for grade. So maybe if you run into me, I'll be there with a group of kids, my age, 18 to 20. Follow us around; you'll get a great tour. <laughs> but uh, so we're going to start uh, talking about the Gettysburg uh, campaign for a little bit. Uh, I'm going to talk about Lee's motives and a few of the battles during the campaign. Uh, the one I'm going to highlight the most is the Battle of Brandy Station, and I'm also going to talk about a few stories that I'm quite partial to in the campaign. All right. So, we'll start with the Battle of Chancellorsville, which happens in Virginia, of course. Uh, so we'll start with May 10th, 1863. The Battle of Chancellorsville has just ended, and so far it's one of the bloodiest engagements of the entire war. The armies don't know what's coming next in the summer of 1863, however. One of General Robert E. Lee's commanders, famed on both sides of the war, has died of a wound he received at Chancellorsville. Rather, he was wounded, contracted pneumonia, and died. Shot by his own men during the night, Thomas Stonewall Jackson will die four days after the battle. Shot three times as he rode back to his lines, one bullet shattering his left arm, which was amputated the day afterwards. And that is when he caught pneumonia and died. This battle was one for Lee to really show his power. The Union Army outnumbered him and originally was outflanking him, but Lee saw this and it would be his shining moment. See, he split his army in two, having Jackson hit the enemy flank, essentially a counter-flanking, rather counter-attack, uh, which was a devastating assault on the Union line, causing it to crumble shortly after. The Confederates thus left Chancellorsville victorious, while Jackson left without an arm, and eventually Lee would leave without a general. On May 10th, Jackson dies. The young VMI artillery professor, who was keen on lemons and veteran of the Mexican-American War, is speaking his last words, taking his last breaths, 
The words, let us cross over the river and rest under the trees, fall from his lips. Despite the loss of Jackson, however, Lee is determined to win another victory. See, Lee is on a winning streak because in 1862, he, despite losing the Battle of Antietam, which was Lee's first attempt to invade the North and win a defeat or win a victory against the Union, excuse me, uh, despite he losing at Antietam, he comes back with a, you know, massive just punch to the Union gut at the Battle of Fredericksburg, and it'll be important to know that what Lee does at Fredericksburg. He doesn't do at Gettysburg, meaning that at Fredericksburg he held the high ground. He was on the defensive, and he was not going to move his army while the Union kept throwing wave after wave after wave of infantry at the heights for being crushed. So Fredericksburg is Gettysburg in reverse, or rather Gettysburg is Fredericksburg in the reverse, chronologically, I suppose, if I do that right. <laughs> However, leaving that battle victorious, Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg, Lee is poised to hit the Union Army in their own territory. With his uh, most respected general out of action, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Generals Richard Ewell and A.P. Hill take command of Jackson's 2nd and 3rd Corps. In June, the Army of Northern Virginia heads north for Pennsylvania because Robert E. Lee wants to fight defensively in the offensive campaign, and what better place to do that than in the rolling landscapes uh, of Pennsylvania, and he wants to crush the Union Army in their country, possibly advance on Washington, as we know and we will discuss later. He'll go after Harrisburg and force the Lincoln administration to sue for peace. See, there are a couple motives why this is, to Lee and the Confederates, a good strategy. <clears throat> so, as I had mentioned just then, Lee is winning victory after victory, and they're big victories, too. There's no small potatoes here. Uh, and, of course, Fredericksburg is close to Washington, D.C., so there was a possibility that Lee could have even gone onto Washington after that. But then he wins and, uh, you know, defeats Hooker, one of the, uh, the Army of the Potomac's most respected generals, fighting Joe Hooker. Uh, of course, they threw in some air quotations there for respected. <laughs> so, um, politically, we'll look at this first. In the North, there is a growing anti-war se uh, sentiment and I'm really grasping at my memory here. I can't remember the, the group's name, but it was a growing um, movement in the North to end the war and let the South be the South. And Lee thinks if he goes North and wins a victory, that group will kind of all come together and request uh, that Lincoln sue for peace because they've been losing so many times at major battles. And not only will be Lincoln pressure, be pressured uh, politically for politically and militarily, really, from the South, but he also be pressured from inside in the North uh, by his own people to end the war. So there's politically. Strategically, if Lee wins a decisive victory in the North and possibly captures a city like Harrisburg and leaves the door, which leaves the door, rather, wide open towards Washington, militarily, that is perfect. That's what you want. You want, if you want the nation's capital... In 1863, this is the best way to do it. So there's that. If he can win a decisive victory and crush the Union Army and embarrass them again in the North, that could possibly end the war. Um, also, one of Lee's other motives is, of course, to end the devastation and destruction that has been wreaking havoc throughout the South. Uh, Virginia is 
completely devastated by the war. Thousands and thousands of acres of crop are stolen, burnt, uh, or destroyed. You know, cities are completely hollowed out by artillery and left burnt to ashes in the wake of battles and campaigns. Uh, a good example would be in 1862 at Fredericksburg, when the Union Army is building pontoon boats to cross the river to be able to, to attack the Confederates on the high grounds at Fredericksburg. They are uh, under fire from sharpshooters that are in the buildings on the roofs uh, of Fredericksburg. So what they do is the Union Army gets the artillery, completely hollows the city out, essentially, and the city's left completely destroyed. And if you look at pictures of cities in the South from the Civil War, they look something like European cities during World War II, and that's insane to think that that happened in America only 150-some years ago. So... Not that distant in the past. So there is that motive for Robert E. Lee. So understanding that, it makes it a little clearer to really understand why Lee wants to go north. With Jackson on Lee's mind, he recalls a strategy that uh, Jackson had once told a Confederate congressman, and that was if Jackson was to be given upwards of 40,000 men, then he could, quote, raise the siege of Richmond and transfer the campaign to the banks of the Susquehanna. However, at the time that Jackson had made that idea and strategized a campaign in the north, such a force was needed to reinforce Lee during the Peninsula campaign that was going on. So, of course, with this, Lee heads northbound at September of 1862 with that in mind, and the Confederate Army is in good shape, but then loses a defeat at Antietam. So jumping ahead a little ways, now that we know everything, the buildup of why the Gettysburg Campaign begins, why the campaign goes north, we can talk a little more about the invasion of Pennsylvania. So we'll, we'll jump ahead quite a bit here into June of 1863. It was in the bright, shining days of June that Lee had marched across the Potomac with a fighting force of 70,000 men, men who had seen combat, men who had killed, men who were hardened veterans. The Army of Northern Virginia had been throughout the entire war highly respected and strong fighters. And they were going to win this battle to end the war, save the Confederacy, and most of all, in memory of Stonewall Jackson. Maybe not in most of all, but that's on people's minds too. However, Lee does have to propose this to Jefferson Davis's cabinet, and after a few days of deliberation, um, they agree, and they bring up uh, the Antietam campaign, and they say, you know, is this a good idea? Well, what's going on, Lee? You know, do you think you can do this? But with this, uh, with the strong Confederate army, Lee's confident that he can do this. So in June, uh, the Confederates push through Maryland and enter Pennsylvania. So once... Uh, the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia arrives in Pennsylvania. Robert Lee uh, assumes that he will have taken the capital city of Harrisburg and turn it into a fortress. Because if the rebels can capture and hold that city, they have leverage to end the war. And Lee hopes this is the outcome from all of his hard work, not only through the campaign, but throughout the entire war. Unfortunately, as we know now, this will not be the case because the general doesn't have proper information to move on. See, Lee has a rough idea of where the Army of the Potomac is located, but he's locked in a guessing game. And in June, rather June 24th, when he's in Chambersburg, he won't have to be guessing anymore in a few days. Of course, 
his lack of information is brought about by um, Jeb Stort, who was riding around. He wrote he did the whole ride around of the Union Army, but as well, uh, Stort was lacking a little behind by engaging in lots of battles, uh, little skirmishes, really, essentially, right after the Battle of Brandy Station, which we'll talk about in a minute here, like Aldi, uh, Middleburg, and Upperville. So he's being delayed by the Union Army, and that's kind of the Union Army's goal, is to delay Jeb Stort's advance, so he's not really with Lee. So I want to talk about the Battle of Brandy Station. The Battle of Brandy Station is the largest cavalry battle of the Civil War, and it's quite interesting. So we'll, I'm going to talk about it for a little bit, and I'm going to give you a first-person account, a first-hand account of the battle that I quite like. So in June, early June 1863, uh, the character that is Jeb Stort, with his uh, frontiersman-like appearance in the face, but southern gentleman-like appearance everywhere else, uh, Stort is making sure that his men are up to par, and he's staging a review for Lee and himself to kind of show, like, we're ready for this, this is big, we can do it. So, Stort is near Brandy Station, which is outside of Culpeper, Virginia. Uh, Brandy Station is a little stop along the railroad, and it gets its name, actually, from the War of 1812, where soldiers flocked to this tiny tavern on the site, for its uh, alcohol, apparently because it offered the best uh, tasting brandy in all of, all of the states. Many soldiers even uh, inscribed the word brandy on the walls of the tavern so they could remember what to get the next time they stopped in. However, on June 8th, the Brandy Station is going to witness a grand review of Jeb Stort's cavalry. Uh, this, of course, for Robert E. Lee. In preparation for the invasion of the North, Lee himself wants to inspect Stort's men to make for certain that they were ready for the mission. Uh, so the day's events were planned for Stort to show off his cavalry's might and, of course, for Stort to showboat a little because what would Stort be if he wasn't making a name for himself uh, somewhere, you know? <laughs> the day's proceedings included, a quote, a sham fight in charge artillery loaded with blank cartridges, a man from 12th Virginia Cavalry, cavalry wrote, excuse me. Uh, days before, Stort held a little review in late May, this being a practice run, but today was different. Quote, this was a business affair, a soldier penned. Quote, Marshaled on the plain were 105 squadrons of cavalry, six light field batteries, ambulances with a trained corps of field attendants, etc., etc. So Jeb Stort and Lee began a quick inspection, riding a uh, very quickly down Stort's massive line of battle. They rode some six miles, but then the mock fight began. For a quiet moment, the sun beat down on the reviewing fields. Thousands and thousands of soldiers and horses began to move out. Sabers pulled from their sheaths and flickered like jewels in the sunlight. Artillery was booming with the blank cartridges, smoke filling the tall grass, hanging with no wind to blow it away. And soon, the sham fight was over. And within a short time, so was the review. One soldier, a Captain Blackford of the Virginia Cavalry, wrote, quote, This was the last of our frolics for a long time, for on the morrow we were to begin the fighting. As the day came to a close, Lee finally approved of Sword's cavalry force and moved off to the north. And eventually the sun set and the men were getting ready for another day of review. Meanwhile, Federal cavalry had been ordered into the Culpeper area. Brigadier Alfred Pleasanton has known of the Confederate cavalry near the south bank of the Rappahannock River for a little while and was aware that they were in number. So Pleasanton also knew that his men would have to soon engage with that rebel force 
but didn't really know when or where, as he had no information on Stort's whereabout, but he had to dislodge them from their area to create a buffer for the Army of the Potomac to head north and follow what they assumed was Lee's position. So, to make sure that Pleasanton's men were backed and were able to fight, he wrote to Joseph Hooker that the rebel cavalry could be easily backed by all of Lee's infantry. So, um, Pleasanton told Hooker to bring his own infantry with the Union horsemen to aid in in their fight. What Hooker did is he agreed, but he only sent 1,500 troops to reinforce the already numbered federal cavalry. Hooker eventually wrote to Pleasanton, Quote, from the most reliable information at these headquarters, it is recommended that you cross the Rappahannock at Beverly and Kelly's Fords and march directly on Culpeper, which was to be the scene of the fighting of Brandy Station. So Pleasanton's order was simple, and that was crush short and delay him as much as possible. So June 9th brought about an early morning for most of the Union cavalry. General John Buford, a man of respect and authority with a prominent piece of facial hair that hung above his lip with short and kept hair, he was a strong and respected fighter in the Union Cavalry, one of the best there was that the uh, cavalry had to offer in the North. And, of course, that um, idea of him being one of the best fighters was represented in his men. The sun was not yet in the sky when he was ordered to stir up his men and move on the Confederate position near Brandy Station. It was early in the morning, right around 4.30 a.m., and Pleasanton's men were on the move, crossing the Rappahannock, with the cold waters whispering under the light of a dying moon in the morning. Cavalry Commander David Gregg and his division of men were supposed to meet with Buford early in the morning, but he could not complete his river crossing until 9 o'clock, but by that time, Buford would be fending for himself against Stort's ferocious men. Leading Buford's men into battle was the 8th New York Cavalry, They slowly moved along Beverly Ford Road towards the enemy position and were confronted by the 6th Virginia Cavalry. One New Yorker remembers that his regiment was given, quote, a sharp fire from the enemy's rifles pit. In this first volley, Lieutenant Henry Clay Cutler was struck dead. He was 23 years of age. His fellow New Yorkers were stunned as they watched Cutler topple from his horse and onto the dirt, and in their rage, they rushed and destroyed the 6th Virginia's picket almost immediately. As time proceeded, more fire began to come in on the Union cavalry, heading towards their enemy to do battle. Because Buford and his men this morning were in for a fight. Fleetwood Heights controlled the battlefield at Brandy Station, and at this moment was being controlled by Union troops. They held the high ground. The afternoon of uh, June 9th, Pleasanton seems to be carrying out his orders quite well. These orders, of course, as I mentioned, were to destroy and delay Stort with his men controlling the high ground and him essentially right now beating back the, uh, the Confederate soldiers. In the past few hours since the skirmish began as Buford's men uh, led the advance on Brandy Station, havoc has broken completely loose on the field. Stort's cavalry force has been embarrassed by a surprise attack at dawn that left them senseless for some time that morning. However, now the Federal uh, cavalrymen are seeing the strong fighting will of the rebels. David Gregg's men are now finally here supporting Buford, as well as up to now 3,000 infantrymen backing the fight. Yes, Hooker sent more. Finally, maybe some promise here on the battlefield. Not only that, but Yankee artillery is thundering from the heights, and the Confederate cavalry is formulating a plan to take that high ground from their opponents in a matter of a few minutes. They would succeed with a crushing attack that would eventually really end 
the Battle of Rainy Station. But one of my favorite uh, uh, recollections of the battle is by a man in an artillery uh, choose battery in the Confederacy. His name is Private George Neese. He writes, quote, When the first inauspicious boom of cannon rolled over the fields from our rear, it was like an electric shock which first stuns, then reanimates. And in less time than it takes to relate it, relate it to our cavalry was rushing toward our enemy in our rear. With nerves and courage strung to the highest pitch, every man d determined to do or die. We followed close after him, then with the battery in about a double-quick gallop. The dust in the road was about three inches deep, and in our hurried movement, my mule fell down. By the time I got my mule back up and I was mounted again, the battery had disappeared into the thick cloud of flying dust. The body of Yankee cavalry, General Gregg's division, that appeared in our rear and crossed the Rappahannock at Kelly's Ford about seven miles below Beverly Ford, and moved up the river, striking the Orange and Alexandria Railroad at Brandy Station, and in the direction of Beverly Fords is Fleetwood Heights, a prominent hill jutting out boldly from the highland on the west to an almost level plain on the east and south. The enemy on our rear had already gained the heights and were strongly posted on the crest, with a line of cavalry and battery of artillery not far away ready to open fire when our cavalry arrived in sight of this formidable hill that was crowned with the threatening danger and almost ready to burst into battle. There was not a moment to lose if our cavalry expected to gain heights from the enemy's grasp and possession and hold them. And it had to be done instantly, by hand-to-hand -hand and hill-to-hill -hill combat. The decision for Sabre Charge was uh, consummated in a moment, and our cavalry gallantly dashed up the slope of Fleetwood with gleaming sabers and charged the formidable line of cavalry that had opened a terrific fire from the crest of that hill. Then commenced the hand-to-hand -hand conflict, which raged desperately for a while, the men on both sides fighting and grappling like demons, and at first it was doubtful as to who was to come and first cry enough, but eventually the enemy began to falter and give way. When we arrived with our battery on top of Fleetwood, the Yanks had already driven from the hill and were retreating across the plain toward the southeast. Squadrons and regiments and, and horsemen were charging and fighting on various parts of the plain, and the whole surrounding country was full of fighting cavalrymen. I think that does a great job of describing the Battle of Brandy Station, the scale, and he also does a pretty good job of describing um, the landscape, which is nice to understand when you're reading. But the Battle of Brandy Station was an intense engagement of wit and strength and strategy, of course. Nearing the end of the day, a large artillery barrage erupted from both sides, trying to soften each other's lines to once again attack with their cavalry. Soon, Federal cannons held back their firing and a column of their horsemen appeared near the enemy lines. They had attempted pushing due to the slim chances of a successful attack. Unfortunately, they didn't because if they did, themselves and their horses would have been staring down the barrel of massive artillery pieces loaded with canister shot just hidden away. Jeb Stort had won the day, sending the Union retreating back across the Rappahannock where they had crossed earlier that morning, leaving behind nearly a thousand dead or wounded men. As Nice wrote, quote, His forces, Pleasanton's forces, recrossed the river this evening and General Stort held the battlefield. This action would not be the last of Stort's role during the Gettysburg Campaign, because he will soon head north into Pennsylvania and battle at Fairfield and Hanover, those places, with Custer, actually. Um, he, however, will make Robert E. Lee very disappointed because once the, quote, eyes and ears of the army had failed him, Stort will soon be replaced after his death the next year. So, 
Another great story that comes out of the Gettysburg campaign and the buildup of the Gettysburg campaign is in Wrightsville, Pennsylvania. Now, there's a great book about this. It's called Beyond Gettysburg. It's not entirely about this, but it does a really great job of um, bringing up the intricate stories um, from the Gettysburg campaign, and especially in June of 1863. Uh, it's by Scott L. Mingus. It's a great book. I recommend it. It is in the recommended reading that I'll put down in the description of this episode. So, Wrightsville, Pennsylvania, June 28, 1863. As time continued to progress and the Confederate Army was making their way deeper into Pennsylvania, they encountered little resistance. But when they did, no story stands out from the rest quite like that of the Wrightsville Bridge. The rebels had just taken the town of York, roughly 33 miles away from Gettysburg, and were hoping to take the capital city, or at least advance upon it, uh, Harrisburg, as previously mentioned, and maybe even the city of Philadelphia if orders allowed them to do so. However, the Confederates must cross the Susquehanna River to reach their target. It's the most efficient and quickest route to their destination. However, the only way to cross the river was the Wrightsville Bridge. But Pennsylvania state militia from the town of Columbia on the opposite side of the river, wanted to make sure the rebels couldn't make their way across, and they were going to fight the Confederates off until they gave up. One thing that's interesting about Columbia, Pennsylvania, it was actually scouted once to be the capital of the U.S., which is really interesting in my opinion. Anyways, uh, joining those Union militia, those Pennsylvania militia for battle, were Union soldiers who had fled from York after it was captured, and even a company of African-American militiamen from Camp William Penn. These Union soldiers and militia forces had collected roughly 1,500 troops to fight. It was June 28th when Confederate Brigadier John Brown Gordon had arrived with 1,800 soldiers of his own. The Federal men had made entrenchments on the Lancaster side of the river and were waiting for battle. Upon spotting the waiting soldiers, Gordon ordered the artillery to fire upon them. And very quickly, the Union position became impossible to hold. Thus, a plan was devised by the little ragtag group to explode a portion of the massive bridge that spanned a mile over the Susquehanna River. However, the explosion failed to destroy it, so then it was ordered to burn the connection, that bridge, so that rebels' access into Lancaster was denied completely. As the Confederates pushed, acro pushed across the bridge, it burst into flames and soon was completely destroyed, collapsing into the river below. The militia had saved Lancaster from being taken by the southern enemies. However, at the cost of the north, actually, because not only was the Wrightsville Bridge an important trade route in the north, but it was one of the longest covered bridges in the world. Uh, it was about oh, just, just shy or around a mile long, so it was quite an impressive um, feat of architecture. Uh, and interestingly enough, they do actually, the burning of the bridge is still commemorated, excuse me, every year in Wrightsville, where they have um, on the uh, trusses of the bridge, the support, the foundation of the bridge, excuse me, they ha they light fires on that. And it's neat, it's it's a little slow, but it's, it's still cool, so it's worth checking out if you ever get a chance. However, the burning of the bridge was a testament to the Confederates, showing that the Northerners were not going to allow them to come into their homes and destroy their lives so easily without a good fight. And in the following weeks, the Union and Confederate armies are going to collide with, in other small skirmishes that will eventually lead to the Battle of Gettysburg. And another story that I particularly am fond of, that I think is really interesting, that doesn't get a whole lot of um, talk about, I guess, 
is that of the 26th Pennsylvania Emergency Militia. They actually have two monuments in Gettysburg. One is out by Marsh Creek. Um, it's a little plaque that says 26 uh, Emergency Militia, Pennsylvania Emergency Militia fought here. Give some details. And there's another one in Gettysburg um, that I actually have some notes here for that I think is quite funny. The one in Gettysburg, um, he's on a rock. It's, I forget the roads. But it's, it's a, at a Y in the road. You'll pass him. He's facing the other way. But he's real brave looking and, you know, as if he's marching into battle. I'll talk about that here in a minute. So this story takes place at Marsh Creek on June 26, 1863. As the Confederate forces' Confederate forces presence was obvious, excuse me, in Pennsylvania and the build-up to an almost inevitable fight, Pennsylvania state militia was mobilized to answer to the enemy's threat and to protect the Cashdown Gap area, an important mountain pass, just to the west of Gettysburg by about eight miles. The 26th Pennsylvania Emergency Militia was mobilized on June 18th, and it mustered a little bit over 700, 740 men. Commanding these men was Colonel William W. Jennings, a young and confident 24-year-old. The unit was dispatched by the Department of the Susquehanna, more specifically Major Darius, General Darius N. Couch. Uh, they arrived at Gettysburg by train, actually, on June 25th at around 9 in the morning. Unaware of a Confederate approach towards Gettysburg, at 10.30 a.m., the militia unit was ordered to march west of Gettysburg on the Chambersburg Pike. They were sent to, quote, delay a southern advance. Colonel Jennings was opposed to this order, knowing that his men were extremely inexperienced and very green with hardly any training. But he still followed the order without protesting it, writing rather that he knew his men were unexperienced. These men leave quite nervous following this order. Along with the 26th, 26th Pennsylvania, a cavalry regiment was detached with them, that being the Philadelphia City Cavalry led by Captain Samuel J. Randall, and riding with him was Captain Bell of the Adams County Cavalry. This regiment would lead the 26th through a foggy and wet day to Marsh Creek. Upon arriving at the water's edge, the column halted on a stone bridge. Jennings thus sent his 40 of his best men ahead with a few of Randall's cavaliers to form a picket line across the bridge while the rest of his men began to form a camp in a clover field uh, on the Gettysburg side of the creek because they believed that they'll be camped out for a few days and they won't have to answer to anything for quite a while. Not joining the infantrymen for arrest was a small company of cavalry posted about 200 yards to the west, even beyond the picket, keeping a watchful eye on the road ahead. The rain this morning continued to drizzle from the clouds. The soldiers pitched their tents in the damp clover field and wanting to seek rest. A dim and depressing sky was hanging above them, and marching towards them, however, was a column of General Jubal Early's soldiers heading their direction. Jennings and Bell moved themselves to a ridge that would grant a better view of the road ahead. Reports of a strong Confederate force coming at them was a good enough reason to be worried and cautious. Posted on Weisler, or now what is called Knoxland Ridge, they spotted a unit of cavalry coming down a sloping ridge tw about two miles away. The men spotted a column of infantry led by a regiment of cavalry shortly thereafter. The officers rode back to the camp and informed their soldiers of the, of the Confederate line heading their way, and thus they scurried to gather their belongings and dashed east towards Gettysburg. However, the men on the picket, Jennings' 40 best men, and some of Randall's cavalry were ordered to hold their ground. The enemy cavalry, upon spotting the line, galloped onward to the picket ahead with a sharp rebel yell and routed the 26th militia. 
Quote, they came with barbarian yells and smoking pistols. This was written by Captain Frank Myers, who was a regiment historian to White's cavalry. The Union troops scuttled away in fear through the swampy fields on that rainy day, leaving behind their short-lived picket in Cloverfield Camp. Cavalry units that had retreated collected themselves near Rock Creek on Hanover Road, fleeing through York and Wrightsville. Only one man of Bell's regiment was killed by one of White's cavalrymen on the Baltimore Pike. In September of 1892, Samuel Pennypacker, who later became the governor of Pennsylvania in the early 20th century, had a statue erected of a soldier remembering the skirmish of the 26th Pennsylvania Militia uh, Regiment. He himself had fought there at Marsh Creek that day. The statue of a young militia soldier defiantly and bravely looking on to- onwards at the enemy, wielding his musket, is almost a joke, essentially. <laughs> the men of the 26th did not act bravely that day, like the figure on the monument would suggest, but rather they broke within a matter of seconds. Penny Packer told sculptor uh, Edward L. Posh, or Pausch, Push, Sorry, man, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> to tuck the trousers into the bootlegs, quote, to indicate the sudden change from peaceful life to the battlefield. I guess that's what that's supposed to symbolize on that monument. However, as the 26th retreated, uh, being followed by the 17th Virginia Cavalry, passed through the Whitmer Farm. On the Whitmer property, the 17th formed on a hill now called Bailey's Hill and prepared to attack. As they did, Jennings ordered a volley to be fired. They knocked a few men from their horses but hardly denting the attack. The 17th returned to volley, killing and wounding several men from the 26th. Jennings now knew resistance was no longer an option and ordered a full retreat, but over 150 men were taken prisoners by the Confederate cavalry. That, to me, is a pretty interesting story. It's not a very well-known story, but there's consequences. You know, there is death, there is wounding, there is capturing. So, and it's, it's, it's a neat little story to tell and relay. Um that people often forget about or don't tell. They don't think it's exciting enough. I think it's pretty interesting. So maybe I'll let you guys be the judge of that. (laughs) All right, so that wraps up the first installment of our Gettysburg series. I'm going to be talking about the uh, days of battle in smaller episodes in which I can go more in-depth into each day of battle. So the next episode will be July 1st. And the episode after that, July 2nd, and eventually July 3rd. And I'll probably, on the July 3rd episode, wrap things up there. Um, I know I didn't really go into a whole lot of detail with the campaign. Um, I thought that it would be nice to have an overview of the campaign and have some individual stories and get the big picture of things before going on into too much detail with the battle. Um, The campaign, as I mentioned earlier, is important, but I also wanted to make it compressed enough where you know i don't have to make a couple episodes about the campaign which i would do if i thought that that might be a little more popular so thank you guys for listening stay tuned for next episode we'll talk about um the battling on july 1st uh, at gettysburg and how those events unfolded thanks for listening i'm joe this is history inc